I invite you to open your pew Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 57 through 62. You're going to find that on page 1031 in your pew Bibles. It's the last section of Luke chapter 9. And this is a passage that has uh, profound insights and uh, a lot of implications for us as Christians, as uh, pilgrims on our Christian journey. Uh, Today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus encounters three uh, men who express their desire to follow him, and yet Jesus has uh, a response to each of them, words that might seem very challenging Uh, or perplexing at first glance, Uh, but together uh, I pray that we would be able to understand what all of this means uh, together. Let's read Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62. As they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we have just read inspired words written down for our instruction, penned many, many years ago, but have present implications. We ask that your spirit would come down today and impress upon our minds and our hearts truths valuable that we would be able to discern from this passage. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who here has seen chariots of fire? More of you need to see chariots of fire. Good, good movie. It's old, but it's an Oscar winner, and it is a remarkable story Uh, about um, a man who in the 20th century, his name uh, is Eric Little. He was born in China to Scottish Presbyterian missionaries, uh, and he was uh, an extraordinary athlete with immense talent and uh, very much a bright future ahead of him. Uh, He was known as the Flying Scotsman for his incredible speed uh, on the track, uh, and his, his athletic abilities were undeniable, uh, and he seemed very much destined for Olympic glory. Well, during his promising athletic career, Eric Little experienced a pivotal moment that would define the rest of his life. He faced a decision that would require him to count the cost of following Jesus. Now, as a committed Christian... Uh, Eric firmly believed that honoring God and living out his faith took precedence over any personal ambition and worldly success in his life. So in 1924, Eric Little was selected to participate in the uh, Olympic Games 
uh, for Great Britain, uh, games which were held in Paris. Uh, but there was a problem. One of the qualifying races that he was set to participate in, which he uh, excelled at, uh, was the 100-meter dash, his strongest event. The problem was that this event was scheduled on a Sunday. Now, Eric faced a dilemma. Either compromise his deeply held Christian convictions or withdraw from the race altogether. Now, I said this was a movie, but this is actually a true story, <laughs> just so we're clear. After careful consideration and much prayer, Eric made his decision. What do you think that was? He chose to uphold his commitment to God, and he declined to run the 100 meters on the Sabbath. Now, doubt that decision shocked the world because he was definitely regarded to be the winner of that event, to win gold. And as disappointment and criticism rained down upon him, Eric remained very resolute in his choice. He wasn't going to stand down from it. But instead of the 100 meters, what he focused on instead was another event, and that was the 400 meters, a distance that he was less accustomed to running, but he nevertheless chose to do it. And despite uh, the odds stacked against him, uh, Eric Little entered the race determined ultimately to honor God uh, through his actions. Um, one of the coolest lines in that movie is when he's uh, confronting his sister Jenny, who's always questioning uh, his motives. And he says, the reason that I run is um, um, to bring God honor and that uh, God made me fast. And I want to honor him with that. He had God in mind all the time. And to the astonishment of many, Eric won the gold medal in the 400 meters, setting a new record in the uh, Olympics in the process. So we can get a sense of his unwavering commitment to faith and the choices that he made. They were a very deep testament to, to his love for Jesus in that time period. And so Eric Little's decision to count the cost of following Jesus, it not only defined his life, but it had left a mark on the world because uh, we're talking about it today, even. And so what Eric's story does for us, it challenges us, me and you, to consider the cost of our discipleship. What does it mean for us to count the cost? Ask yourself this question. Are you willing to make difficult choices and sacrifices for the sake of your faith? Like Eric Little, we may face moments when uh, we may choose between the world's calling on our lives or the calling of Jesus. And so it may be tempting to compromise or to even just take that easier path out. Uh, but we must remember that true discipleship requires that we count the cost and stand firm in our commitment to Christ. Jesus as we know, I trust, is the divine Son of God, the promised Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. We're talking about the one through whom all things were made, and it's his call that demands complete surrender and devotion. And the way we're going to uh, flesh that out this morning is to survey in our text these three potential 
disciples. We could call them would-be disciples that Jesus encounters. And what Jesus is going to do for them and what he's going to do for you and me this morning is he's going to expose challenges and costs of following him. You can follow along in the bulletin uh, outline that's provided for you. In three segments, we're going to see three different costs that are involved in our following Jesus. The cost of comfort, the cost of care, and the cost of conditions. We'll see what all of those mean briefly this morning. So, visiting number one, the cost of comfort. Our text begins, however, just with this little preface, with these words, as they were going along the road. Seems rather simple, but it actually carries profound significance, just that one sentence, as they were going along the road. Uh, What it reminds us of is that Jesus was being led on a path that led to sacrifice, suffering, and ultimately on the cross. In just a few verses beforehand, uh, Luke, the gospel writer, sets this motif throughout the remainder of his gospel. And in verse 51, he begins what scholars call the travel narrative. Verse 51 says uh, that Jesus set his face where? To go to Jerusalem. And so what you're going to see should you sit down and read the rest of Luke, are these uh, hints that the author drops that Jesus is continuing on this track, this trajectory towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. He's got his face set on that. Um, And so Luke makes those narrative suggestions throughout um, because as Jesus traversed the holy land, he knew the purpose that awaited him in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He knew that his journey was going to end and that it was going to culminate in his sacrificial death for the salvation of his people. And yet even despite knowing what the culmination was going to be, Jesus remained resolute in his mission. And that probably drops a massive hint for what the the big theme and remainder of this message is going to be, but we'll just mention that here and we'll return to it later. But what about this first potential would-be disciple. And how does the lesson that Jesus gives him speak to us today regarding the cost of comfort as a disciple of Jesus? What about this man? I think it's, I think it's important, first of all, to note um, his actual initial willingness to follow Jesus. If you look in your text, the man declares, first off, his intentions of following Jesus wherever he goes. And he demonstrates a fervent desire uh, to serve and accompany Christ on his journey. That's commendable. Absolutely it is. Um, We're not told to what extent uh, the heart of this, where where this individual's heart was, but there does appear to be a wholehearted commitment to being in the presence of Jesus. And then Jesus turns around And what he says next highlights the depth of sacrifice and dedication required to be his disciple. Jesus lays down hard here for us what following him means. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This here is the cost of following Jesus. Jesus is saying, I have no place to call home. 
So by, by contrasting his situation with the beasts of the earth uh, who possess designated places for rest, Jesus is emphasizing this voluntary, you could almost say abandonment uh, of comfort and security that discipleship may entail. It's a straightforward statement, uh, but it's a compelling one. So Jesus challenges our, our conventional ideas of stability and material possessions in just that one sentence. He reveals that the path of discipleship is not going to be one of earthly pleasure or material indulgence. By stating that he has no place to lay his head, Jesus emphasizes that his purpose on earth transcends all personal comfort and security that we desire. Discipleship involves a willingness to to sacrifice worldly attachments and to embrace a life characterized by faith and reliance on God's provision for us. We see that God, God even provides that den and those nests for those beasts. We should have reliance that God will provide for us too. So this morning, Christ encourages me and you to confront the material security and comfort that often hinder our devotion to him. It could be multiple things. It could be money, uh, a fine home, a soft pillow to lay on, provided by uh, family even. All good things, to be sure, and, and gifts that the Lord uh, provides us with. The question before us is, do those things hinder your relationship with Jesus? Jesus' words encourage us to let go of things that are temporary and to find our ultimate security, peace, and rest in him alone as his disciples. He invites us to entrust our lives to him uh, to the max, fully recognizing that true fulfillment is not found in accumulation of possessions or the pursuit of worldly success, but true fulfillment is found in a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ when we follow him genuinely. And you say that's hard. Mm -hmm. I say that too. Uh, And yet... The Son of God, he himself, we could say, willingly, in his obedience to the Father, abandoned the comforts of heaven and embraced a life of hardship and homelessness for your sake. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. His his words reflect... Um, his earthly circumstances, and they reflect and look ahead to a greater sacrifice that he would make on the cross, and it's the place where his head would ultimately come to rest, but it's resting in death, um, bearing the weight of our sins. Brothers and sisters, our commitment to him should arise from that place of gratitude and awe for what he did on the cross for us, recognizing this immeasurable price that he paid to reconcile us with God. And let us, 
live our lives in continued uh, reflection of his sacrificial love, walking in obedience, sharing that message of salvation and of provision that he gives to those who stand in need of such things because we ourselves have received an immeasurable bounty and riches in Jesus Christ ourselves. Why would we not want to share that uh, with others? At the same time, recognizing the cost of comfort that that's going to be placed on us. Point number two, what about our second would-be disciple? And why do I title this second point the cost uh, of care? I do want to make a note here. This would-be disciple and the third one that we're going to look at, their circumstances are incredibly similar. Um, But what I'm going to aim to try and do is extract two different uh, themes that we see embedded in each of them. But you can apply both themes to each one of these men. So I'm going to try my best not to sound redundant with them. Let's read our Lord's words to him once again. This is uh, starting in verse 59. To another... He said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says these very interesting words. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You'll notice, uh, firstly, the contrast between this would-be disciple and the first one. Um. This gentleman is called by Christ himself to follow him, whereas the first declared he wanted to follow Jesus. When the call of our Lord, when he does that calling, and it's given to one, one's ears must be given to those words that are spoken. And yet there's a hesitancy in this disciple. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, in ancient Israelite customs, burying the dead was a great religious, uh, and or held great religious and social significance. It was a sacred duty and honor uh, to respect the deceased, especially if it was a parent. So when the potential disciple expresses his desire to fulfill this obligation before following Jesus... You can understand the weight of his words. There's this, there's this tension uh, between fulfilling these um, parental obligations, familial responsibility uh, of caring for those things. That's why I, why I threw that word care in there. Um, there's a tension between that and this urgency of following the call of Jesus And while burying the dead was considered a noble and honorable task, Jesus offers, once again, a weighty perspective. Might I add first, though, that when we read something like this, we're not to think that Jesus is is not nixing family responsibility. Jesus held perfectly to the law. He knows and he understands what it means to honor your father and your mother. But what I'm trying to convey this morning is how he emphasizes the priority of the kingdom of God over all earthly duties. Look at his statement. Let the dead bury their own dead. What on earth is that supposed to mean? 
We understand, we know that that's not realistically possible. Dead people can't bury other dead people. So what does it mean? What Jesus is suggesting here is that those who are spiritually dead, those who have a disconnect from God, let them be the ones to bury the dead. While those who have been called to proclaim and embody the kingdom, those who have been called, you and me, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, let's make that our priority and let's prioritize that commitment. The encounter with this man reminds us, again, that our priorities can sometimes hinder our commitment to Christ. It is so easy to get caught up in the demands and obligations of daily life when we take precedence over those things over God. We may find ourselves making excuses or even delaying a response to the call that that we feel may be being impressed upon our lives. Jesus' words challenge us to examine our priorities. Now, you all had a journey on your way to church this morning. What were you thinking about? What priorities were on your mind? I'm sure you did a lot of thinking about such things. What are they? What do you have to take care of today? Are they impeding your service to your Lord, or are they actually in line with service to his kingdom and his purposes in that kingdom? God invites us to place the kingdom of God above all else and to follow him wholeheartedly. That does not mean that we are to neglect responsibilities or abandon duties that may be placed upon us, but rather are those things that we do aligning with our commitment to Christ in the first place. And in our commitment to Christ, we see in in a more uh, transparent way, if we are doing such a thing, and I trust that this takes place in our lives when we do, that in our commitment to Christ, we actually see and are blessed with seeing how committed he has been to us this whole time. Um, because Christ and his number one priority was to do the will of his Father, to, by being sent by his Father to fulfill the great plan of redemption, the salvation of souls, yours and mine, if you're in Christ this morning, uh, leaving that bliss of glory taking on weak and frail humanity, having weathered hands that would have nails pierced them for our redemption. If that isn't a priority, then I don't know what is. Our commitment to Christ should reflect what is of first importance to do the will of the Father and to care for his church. May that be true of us this morning. Number three, the cost of conditions. Thirdly, our final would-be disciple. He seeks to follow Jesus, but he's providing conditions for doing so. He says, uh, 
Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, very similar to our friend from before, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Seems reasonable, right? Scholars, when looking at this text, see uh, hints of Old Testament language here when uh, Elijah called Elisha to be his prophet. And when he did so, he allowed Elisha the pleasure of saying farewell to his family first. Uh, Christ does not allow this. He responds, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, very uh, weighty words here. Jesus, uh, being in the Middle East here, in the Levant, uh, Palestine, Israel, uh, is very much aware of agriculture and what goes on. And so he's using this agricultural uh, image to convey another profound spiritual truth. In an agrarian society, plowing was very crucial and very uh, labor-intensive. It required the utmost and full attention of and dedication of the person guiding the plow. Farmers in the ancient Near East, what, uh, what they did was they relied on these oak-framed uh, plows featuring a sole metal share. That's the bladed edge that um, gently scores the soil to create very shallow furrows. And to steer the plow, uh, the farmer grasped a handle at the back of the plow And uh, while it was drawn across the field by one or two donkeys or a team of oxen, uh, and by by focusing ahead and maintaining his position and his firm grip on the plow, the farmer uh, skillfully ensured this very level furrow that uh, would have been very optimal for seed germination and for planting. One look back from this plow would have spelt difficulty for this farmer. If they were to gaze backwards for even just a moment while plowing, their attention would be divided and their work would suffer. And so Jesus is utilizing this metaphor to illustrate the level of focus and the level of dedication uh, required to follow him faithfully. But what is the spiritual significance of looking back? What does does it have to do with how I described conditions? Um, Well, to be very simple about it, um, Jesus is saying, I am willing, or Jesus, this is what the man is saying, Jesus, I am willing to follow you, but only if I can do X first, or at least for a little while. In other words, Jesus emphasizes that once a person chooses to follow him, they should not look back and have what we could call divided allegiances. One writer puts it this way, looking back, in our, in our text, looking back is, it's not just a momentary glance. It's not a very quick, you know, take. <laughs> but it represents going back to one's family. Lot's wife looked back as did the nation of Israel after leaving Egypt, and they both longed for their old life. What does that mean for us? When raised to newness of life, 
the genuine Christian follows Christ but does not willingly take the old life with them as part of that package deal of being a disciple. The call of, of discipleship demands surrendering our will, our desires, our priorities to the lordship of Christ. It's crucial, however, to recognize that Jesus is not implying here that it's wrong to reflect, that it's not wrong to learn from our past experiences. What he is doing instead is cautioning against being preoccupied with them uh, or clinging to a former way of life that's going to hinder progress in our present spiritual journey and prevents us from being, as Christ says, unfit or it implies being unfit for the kingdom of God. That phrase, fit for the kingdom of God, it indicates that the kingdom of God requires individuals to be fully committed, devoted, and single-minded in their pursuit of God's purposes. And it further emphasizes the need for an unwavering commitment to Christ. We don't set the conditions for following Jesus. Just a little bit of this, just a little bit of that, and then I'll follow you. No, it's an unshaken commitment to the end with our Lord who demands our complete allegiance and devotion. Near the beginning of the message, I spoke about Christ setting his face towards Jerusalem knowing what lay before him, the cross. And in so doing, Jesus exemplified complete loyalty to the Father's will, and he set the ultimate example of undivided attention. Jesus, in setting his face to do the Father's will, never looked back. He never wavered in his mission He had his hand on the plow, and he not once looked back, even in the face of hardships, temptations, and ultimately the cross. When we look at these three would-be disciples, which one do you resonate with the most? We don't know what ultimately became of them, Perhaps uh, they were left alone, sitting in their thoughts, pondering the words that Jesus had just said to them, considering what it meant to actually count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Have you taken the time to do that for yourself? Have you committed to being a disciple of Jesus, and yet at times find yourself mourning the cost of comfort or of caring for things or family that seem to take precedence in life? Or have you set conditions that you need met before you even make that decision to follow Jesus in the first place? I pray that the Lord would work in us if we have these concerns, that he would take care of them in our lives, paving the way for fullness of joy and commitment in our service to Christ. Because even in these 
points in time in our lives where we struggle maybe with that unwavering commitment. God is patient to work these things in us, in our growth as a disciple. He's merciful to us, and that isn't seen more clearly and more thoroughly than in his sending his son to dwell among us, to walk towards Jerusalem, to die for you and for me, that we may become his disciples. What the Father planned in eternity past uh, to save a people, to call them to himself, to be his children, to be his disciples, he knew what it would cost, and that was Jesus. Look to him as you contemplate these things this week. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would instill in our minds and in our hearts what it means to count the cost of following you, of being a disciple of Jesus. Help us to have such unwavering devotion and commitment to him, walking in obedience and fullness of joy, recognizing the, the, the cost that uh, it took to secure that salvation for us in sending your son to die by taking on our weak and frail humanity. Father, even, the, even so, we, we see the resurrection and we see our being raised to newness of life with him. Help us to ponder these things this week by the illumination of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.